So what I want to do today is we're going to look at a few verses from the passage we looked at last week uh, because we're going to discuss a subject that, um, well, frankly, this, this could have been a part of next week's sermon, but I think it's going to work better as just kind of a standalone thing. So the good news for you is that instead of a massive sermon next week, you get a kind of a short one this week and then a medium one next week, okay? So I hope that works. But we're going to be discussing something that is super important and has profound implications for life on this globe, um, but yet we we'd oftentimes don't think about it. So turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 2. And we're just going to read a few verses today. Verses 15, 16, and 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. <coughs> Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. Even these, these few verses, which we oftentimes kind of read over, um, we thank you for your work in creation and the significance of what you have instituted, how you have tied us in the very fabric of our beings to your purposes for this planet. We ask that we would be bold and brave and humble and gracious all at the same time. Grant that we would turn our eyes to you and seek our identities and our ambitions based upon your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So... We have been looking for the past several weeks at the account of creation in Genesis. Uh, these opening chapters of Genesis are packed with import. And so we've, we've seen how God in the span of six days made all that is. And in the seventh day, which was consecrated, he established the Sabbath. And we saw that last week that God, when he created man, we were created as the focal point of creation, that, that we are essential to the functioning and the flourishing of this earth, and that man was, was meant to rule and govern, and he was given great, luxurious circumstances in which to do so, but he was also given great responsibilities. Very true, all of it. Um, 
one of the things we need to step back and look at are the set of conditions that were placed upon mankind in the foundational moments of the world. One of the things that you sometimes hear some modern theologians do is, is they speak of grace a little too freely. Um, some, some, some modern theologians, uh, I think starting with Bart, would try to argue that, that everything even here is, is on the basis of grace. And that's not true. Okay? We, need, we need to hold the line and recall classic orthodoxy. Grace presupposes a fallen condition. Before the fall, it was not grace. God related to man on the basis of his, of his holiness, his purity. He was free from sin. And he established conditions and placed obligations upon his unfallen creation. The operating principle of the pre-fall world was not grace. It was works. The operating principle was obedience, not faith. Okay? Now, of course, you, 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 you act out of your faith. I get it. But the operating principle was that man stood or fell on the basis of his conduct. That's important because it says and explains so much about the world. One of the things that we have failed to discuss is this concept of creation ordinances. And perhaps you've heard the term creation ordinance. What is an ordinance? City ordinance, it's, it's, it's a law, right? It's, it's a something that has been instituted and set in place by God. And so when we say creation ordinance, we're referring to a divine mandate or a divine principle that was set in place in the pre-fall world given to our first parents as the very fount of humanity that is binding upon their actions, ties us to the fabric of creation, and because it was given to our first parents, this is something, these creation ordinances, are something that is actually outside the church. These are things that are rightly incumbent upon and regulated by human authorities. This is important too, as we will see. Now these creation ordinances are such that to deviate from them, to rebel against them, to seek to overthrow, undermine, or resist them is to go against nature and its God. And so the church in its prophetic role seeks to first call believers to live in light of 
the true humanity that they were created to be. But secondly, we rightly call governments to exercise their role as God's servants. Romans 13.4 actually calls the civil authorities God's deacon. And there's a long line of precious Christian thought that understands what that means is that the laws of the state have an obligation to submit themselves to the law of God because they are God's deacon. And so when they fail to do so, they are usurpers and rebels against the God who put them in position of power in the first place. So in our prophetic role, we are to call the people around us to live according to creational mandates. Otherwise, they find themselves tearing down the fabric of reality around them, denying their own creational being. The creation ordinances are such that they help shape our understanding of self, our understanding of purpose. They explain the impulses even that we have as being good, right, and from God. So what I want to do today is highlight the three creation mandates that we have covered thus far. Because the next creation ordinance is the creation ordinance of marriage, and that's what we're going to be seeing next week. But there are three creational ordinances that God has instituted that we have covered in our readings thus far. And I don't think we, we, we grasp how significant it is for us. So we're going to jump around for a little. We're going to backtrack. Uh, if you write down Genesis 1.28, this is the first of the creation ordinances. After God creates man, male and female, he says to them in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything that lives and moves on the earth. That's me summarizing because he extrapolates out over everything. Okay, so be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. This creation ordinance is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. And it functionally breaks down into two parts. Procreation and rule. Be fruitful and multiply. That's procreation. Now, He's going to institute the ordinance of marriage, which provides the context in which procreation is ordinarily to occur. But as a humanity, we are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Second, we're called to subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing. Now, he has created us to carry out this cultural call. 
It's not simply enough to say that it's a command. When he blesses something, when the Lord blesses something in creation, saying to do something, he's actually creating the impulses that make us desire to do this. So he's not just saying, be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? I guess he's created the impulses that lead to being fruitful and multiplying. But you know what it's also? You, you feel this creative aspect of the cultural mandate when, when you start yearning for children. But what has, what has the lie of feminism said that, that children and the desire for it is just a culturally conditioned thing where a woman's worth is found in and, and so she wants to fit in or something? And, and so I, in the military, knew all, uh, many, many, many professional women who, who sacrificed a lot to attain very senior level positions, and even they would, would, would yearn. And you sometimes hear people refer to it as a biological clock. It's, it's this impulse that God has instituted. And so men... Women, the desire for children is good. And the impulse to have them is good. And it ties you to the fabric of this world that God has set in motion. It means that we should see the bearing of children as a part of our humanity. And so we are right to call nation states that seek to limit or disincentivize procreation. They are detracting from the expression of personhood of the people under their sway. The cultural mandate also includes dominion. We are to subdue the world, we are to exercise governance over the created order. The impulse that we have to go and do something. You come into a space and you want to first tear down what's there to remake something in the way that you want it. That's not just a, that's not selfish impulse. Of just No, it's the created fabric that God has made that we are to subdue and govern this world by going into a place and making it better. This cultural mandate infers government. Some of us think government's a bad word. But, but even in a sinless context, you need government. Let's say we were all sinless and we never said or did anything that annoyed one another. But yet we're called to go and have a civilization. Well, who decides where, 
where, field, where food should be grown? Who decides where sanitation places should be put? Who decides where infrastructure? See what I mean? We, we need government to help orchestrate and coordinate the effort. So government we see is a good thing as created and inferred from the cultural mandate. Which is why we are right, Christians are right to call the government to be free of corruption. Everybody knows corruption is bad because of the moral law in their heart. But Christians are called to be a prophetic voice pointing out where corruption and wickedness hold sway. We believe that God has made government and that government answers to him. And so the cultural mandate informs our actions that it is a good thing to go into a new place and make it better. It is a good thing to find the resources that are there that will better life. It is a good thing when we hear babies cry. It is a good thing when we see birth counts going up. This is all precious. But there's a second cultural, there's a second uh, creation ordinance. And that we see in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, the Sabbath principle. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. (coughs) Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And now, you may recall from when we talked about this, That in this, God is establishing a number of things, a cadence to life, that we don't just go and work sun up to sun down nonstop 365 days a year until the day we die. I told you about my experiences while I was deployed, and I'm telling you, you can in fact function without a day off. Because you have time during that 24 period where you're not actually working. But life becomes a rote, you just go through the motions. So God wills that we have a cadence to our life. God controls time. And we are to acknowledge the governance of time by God. And so entwined in this, in this, the created order that many of you, if you have studied the French Revolution, one of the things they tried to do was to go to a 10-day week to get away because the French Revolution was not as our revolution. It was a thoroughly humanistic, godless enterprise. But humans are tied to the created order. And the created order is a seven-day week. And so the 10-day week couldn't long prevail. It's like atheism. It only stands when it's being propped up because man is incurably religious. And so time, cadence, rhythms, seasons, this is established by the Sabbath principle. 
and we need to recognize it. Because even though you may pause during the day to, to sleep and to restore your brain, some of us live in defiance of it, and we're, we're burning the candle at both ends, and people who just work, work, work. They're in defiance, and they wonder why they burn out. Deuteronomy 20 is, is kind of shocking because it says that God rested on the seventh day, and, and, and the word it uses is, is, is astonishing. What does it say God was after he rested on the seventh day? Genesis, Revelation, Genesis, uh, Exodus 20 says God was refreshed. Now, how could the tireless one need refreshment? Well, that's a different topic, but we need refreshment in the sense that we all know it means. So, the cure to laziness, the cure to workaholism is the Sabbath principle. Six days you shall labor, and the seventh is holy. But the Sabbath principle establishes that there is a time to worship. That the worship of the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, needs time in which to happen. And so humans worship. Humans are worshiping beings. And one of the things I appreciate about our government and governments that have followed in the last 200 years that have copied our model is that we understand the principle of freedom to worship. Meaning that you can worship whatever deity or whatever you think is fair to you. Theologically, that's going to wind them in hell. But culturally, we need the freedom to worship God as we understand him so that we can worship him in truth. And I praise God that our founding fathers recognized that principle. So we, we worship. And we recognize that all of time is the Lord's. And so there's truly no such thing as a closed nation. When a government says you're not allowed to evangelize, says who? Says who? The usurper? Jesus is king. Almighty God created man and earth, man and woman and children. These are the this is the Father's world. The seventh day is his universally. So the Sabbath principle establishes not only a cadence of life, but the obligation and the freedom to worship. Third, we see here the covenant of works. Given with, to Adam, the covenant of works is the conditions upon which Adam could have inherited eternal life. If he had obeyed, the rest of history would have been very different. But he did not. He failed. But the principles set in motion here are still binding on each of us. The covenant of works was broken, violated by Adam, but it's part of the created order. 
which is why it's still incumbent upon each of us. And so Romans 5 tells us that if we approach God, we do so in the basis of being in, identified with, one of two people. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. To approach God in Adam means you're approaching God on the basis of this covenant, which is, were you perfectly obedient in every thought, word, and deed? And the answer to that for everybody is no. If you approach God in Christ, well, Christ was perfect. And he kept the law for you. And so his suffering was done on your behalf for your failure to keep the law, but then you are given his righteousness for having kept the law, so you are seen as having kept the law. All of this underscores that this principle of the covenant of works abides. And it's not just there theologically. It is the reason why in life you get by on your merits. That impulse we have to prove our worth, that impulse we have to earn our keep, that impulse we have to show how we are positively contributing, that we aren't quote-unquote, dead weight, all stems from the fact that tied into the fabric of this world is a do-this-and-live ethos. The covenant of works explains why our merit, our accomplishments, our attainments are so wound up and bound to this created order. And it's why it's so hard when we come to Christ to separate ourselves out. Because the thing that Christ tells us is that none of that stuff, none of that stuff is good enough. Because we are sinners. But in the world, we are called to pull our weight. We are called to work hard. And and this principle even makes its way into the covenant community. So that while on the one hand we are to show grace and mercy and an abundance of love and exhortation and all this stuff, nonetheless, Paul does not shrink back from saying that if you will not work, you shall not eat. And then when he speaks to to fathers, to providers. I mean, it's, this is harsh. It, but he says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. You're an infidel. You've denied the faith. That's, that's pretty hardcore. Because God, in creation, has established all these ordinances. And men... You are called to govern, to guide, to grow, to gather, 
You are called to shepherd all that is entrusted to you. And God has established the home, the family, the Sabbath, all these, dare I say, sacred sanctums in which his purposes are revealed and made known. And so we are right to say, hey, the government has a duty to motivate and incentivize hard work. The government has a, has a, has a duty to incentivize such things as marriage and procreation. And the government has a duty to disincentivize laziness and sloth. The government has a duty to ensure that its people can worship. And when it's not, it's failing. So these creation ordinances are not just for church people. It's for the world. When two pagans have a baby, they're, they're operating in accordance with the creation mandate. We honor a marriage even when it's two Hindus or something. Because it's not a Christian thing, marriage. It's a human thing. And marriage is a good thing. So go forth from here understanding that some of these very basic things about our humanity are, are part and parcel of the created order. And so when we find ourselves talking to people who are resistant, what they're resisting is, frankly, the expression, the true expression of their humanity. Just as when it says God made them male and female, and for people to think there's more than that is they're in denial and they're in rebellion. So God is the author, not just of the matter of reality. God is the author of the, the fabric, the, the matrix of reality with its principles that inform the impulses, the drives, the relationships that governs all of life on this planet. So when you see someone who's working hard, when you see a man and a woman married, when you see them at least open to the idea of children, when you see them taking time to worship, you, you see something that's fundamentally rightly ordered. And that's a good thing. And that's something to be celebrated. So, even those of you who grew up in homes that were unchristian, praise God for the fact that you had a home to grow up in. And even when one, of your, one or both of your parents were unbelievers, nonetheless, they married and they, and they had you and they had a job. And that's, that's living rightly ordered as created beings, and it's something for which we can give thanks. And that's something we can encourage our neighbors to do. And it's the kind of stuff we should instill in our children to become. So next week, we're going to look at the covenant of marriage and the profound implications we get from that latter portion of chapter 2. Let's pray.